0: Well, it's good to be with you today and to be home. I get to fill the pulpit uh, a good bit in other places, but it's always nice to be able to do it where I uh, worship whenever I'm in town. In fact, I can prove I worship here because I matched my tie to the carpet this morning and just thought that that might be an encouragement, into the choir robes for the first uh, service. So that's a lot of fun. I am uh, very uh, excited to be able to be with you and to share the word this morning when Brother Paul called me. I said, well, where will the readings that the church is doing uh, be on that week? And he said, the Ten Commandments, would you like to speak on the Ten Commandments? And I said, I would love to be able to speak on the Ten Commandments. So that's where we'll be today in Exodus uh, chapter 20. But let me go ahead and pray for us again as we begin to look at God's word. God, how grateful we are for your word, for your word that guides us and instructs us. Your word that helps us to understand who we are, but more importantly, helps us understand who you are. And so God, today as we look at the way that you've revealed your heart to us through the Ten Commandments and through the law and how those things all point to the ultimate grace that comes in Christ Jesus. God, we are so grateful for the way that you love us and the way that you have shown your love to us. And we pray these things in Christ's name this morning. Amen. Well. Before I really get into the text, let me just say a couple of things. I do have the privilege of serving as the president at North Greenville University, and so that means I have lots of like uh, employees and co-workers and some students. We're on spring break this week, so we don't have quite as many students as we typically would uh, here at Taylor's, but Taylor's First has meant so much to the university. I, when I came to the university, I read back through the history, and one of the churches that you'll find coming in very quickly in our history was Taylor's First. North Greenville celebrated running its 125th uh, it- Uh, anniversary as an institution this year. Uh, We were started as a school for mountain children up in the dark corner, and some of you who are not from the upstate may not know this, but uh, the reason NASCAR started up was because of the dark corner of South Carolina and and the areas next to it in North Carolina uh, from all the moonshiners. And there was a group of Baptist churches that felt like all the children that were coming out of that very impoverished region needed to have the chance that education could bring. And so these churches gathered together and they started what was then a mountain boarding school and then it's become a junior college and now we're a full-fledged university with about 2,400 students. We have a campus in Greer that is for our graduate students as well. But one of the things that we love about churches like uh, Taylor's First is that these are churches that participate in the cooperative program. In fact, I want to go back to something that was discussed a moment ago and that is the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Uh, I am a cooperative program baby and for those who don't know, Baptist churches all across the country uh, pool their resources to try to support missions. And when I was about four years old, my dad answered the call to go from Mississippi, to Buffalo, New York, and he began to plant churches, and it was the Annie Armstrong offering and our home mission program, now North American mission program, uh, that helped to put bread on our table while we were there serving. Dad started nine churches in seven years, if you can imagine that. I made my profession of faith in our living room at our house church, and uh, about two years after I made my profession of faith, there was a church in Greenwood, Miss, uh, Greenwood, South Carolina, that helped us to have a baptistry. And so we were the only family on our street that had a baptistry in the garage. They thought we were a cult. Uh, this was about 1967, 68. Daddy used to shave our heads on Saturday nights. And uh, um, they all thought we were crazy and all that. They put me in speech therapy, because I was from Mississippi and we lived in New York. I- I'll let y'all walk through that. So every now and then I'll have somebody who'll say, you're from Mississippi, you don't sound like you're from Mississippi, and that's because uh, I learned not to talk like that no more. <laughs> and uh, my mother, who was Miss Pine Belt, uh, was horrified when they did that, but uh, anyways. Uh, And Taylor's First is a great cooperative program church, and I do want to encourage you to consider prayerfully how you might give to Annie Armstrong, uh, just as you consider how you give to the other programs, uh, including North Greenville. You've been sending gifts to North Greenville for 100 years plus, and you've been sending board of trustee members, you've been sending... Uh, Your students to us, you've sent your prayers to us, and it has meant uh, all the difference for us up there. We're a university that is trying to flood our region, our nation, and our world with godly educated, not just ministers and missionaries, but godly educated accountants, school teachers, lawyers, business leaders, you name it, who understand that God calls each and every Christ follower to serve him in whatever their chosen profession is. And so I have the great privilege and luxury of serving there. I'll be inaugurated actually on August 13th. We'll have a special service uh, on the morning of the 13th. And if you're able to come, it's a community-wide invitation. We'd love to be able to have you there. And for our anniversary, we have other uh, gifts to the community. We're calling them concerts, lecture series, uh, arts events, and things like that. Go to our website, ngu.edu, and you can find those by clicking on a button. But I'm not here to give a commercial for North Greenville. I know I just did that. But I'm not here to give a commercial for North Greenville. I'm here to talk about God's Word and about how we are now in the process of being prepared for Easter by the readings that we all are doing. And so when Brother Paul and I were talking about it, he had just preached on the Passover last week, and he said, if you'll do the Ten Commandments, that would just be phenomenal. That will keep us in that path as the church is reading these scriptures together. And so I do want to talk uh, this morning, I I want to look at the Ten Commandments. We're not going to go verse by verse per se, but I want to talk about them as a unit and how God has revealed his heart to us through these commandments and through the laws that come in the verses after it so that it always is constantly pointing us to Christ. And so I know you just got settled down and sat, but we're going to read God's word. So let's stand uh, as I read chapter 20 out of Exodus, we'll begin in verse 1. So let's stand for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. And listen to these words as we now go with what we call the Ten Commandments. It says this, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is on heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you work and do all labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. And in it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated so uh, i am not a pastor Uh, i do have a seminary degree and i have the opportunity to preach a lot uh, I'm, I'm actually a college professor, and I'm actually a professor of literature, which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit here in a moment. But one of the things that we do in uh, academia and higher ed is we often will listen to the kinds of research that people are doing. And research helps us to kind of know how our world works. And uh, one of the groups that I really love to listen to are psychologists, because psychologists, I think they're all a little twisted, right? Uh, and so they like to study people, like we're not one. We're, you know, Those are people, in, you know. Uh, and so one time I was listening to a psychologist who was talking about an experiment, and the experiment went something like this. And, and this was not like in a Christian context, um, but there certainly is a Christian application here. Uh, the way the experiment worked was something like this: the psychologist brought in a group of students into a classroom that was a large classroom, and he handed them all beanbags, had them all stand in line, handed them beanbags, and way over on the other side of the room, probably like maybe 30 feet away or something like that, was a little basket on a table, and he said, "I will give a cash reward to whoever can get a beanbag." into that basket without knocking the beanbag off the table or anything like that. I'll give you a cash reward. And so the first kid came up and, you know, tossed the beanbag and the second kid comes up and throws the beanbag. They're trying to figure because it's so far over to the basket. And so one by one they're doing it. You know, maybe one of them hits it and it goes off the table and he says that's that's, you know, I told you it's got to be uh, on the table and everything. So finally this kid that's in the group who's, you know, that guy, you know what I mean? The guy that's the smart aleck, right? Uh, he comes over and he just gets the bean bag and he just walks over across the room and drops the bean bag in the basket. And he looks back at the guy and the guy says, and he pulls out and hands the guy money and everybody else says, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's breaking the rules. Nobody, we can do that? And the, and the guy that was running the experiment said, nobody told you you had to stand here, I just handed you the beanbags here. And he said what he saw in that was the human desire to create rules is innate in us. And we like to create our own rules. In fact, when I was a kid, we had a 7-Eleven at the end of our street. And I still love 7-Eleven. I've got them all on a map in my brain. I don't need an app. I know where they all are because I like me a Slurpee. And uh, my my favorite candy back then when we had it at the end of the street was M&M's. And uh, I noticed sometime after I was getting my M&M's that what would happen is I'd rip off, actually back then they came in a little, some of you remember, a little actual, uh, like the king size was in a little box and I remember I'd just dump it up and dump them down and uh, they'd all be gone in about 30 seconds. So I invented rules for eating M&M's. I would segment them by color and then I'd roll a dice and I'd see how many could I eat in that. I mean, I had this crazy game on how to control myself from my urge to just consume M&M's like, you know, they were, they were going out of business or something like that. And so there is this crazy human desire that we have to invent rules. In fact, some of you may know elementary school teachers who do this at the first day of class, right? You get a marker and you begin to write the class rules and you'll ask the class, does anybody have a rule they like to add? In fact, when I was in college I had a professor who did this and it's really it's actually a funny story. I didn't tell it in the first story, service because I, I didn't think about it again until just now but I had a professor who was a Marxist. He was a communist, an out and out communist and he said, I I don't believe in authority, I I believe that power lies in the people, and we're going to make our own rules for this semester, so we're going to make our own syllabus. And he said, all right, I think we need to have four exams this semester. How many do you people think we need to have? And we voted to have none. And then he said, all right, well, that's all right. We're going to do a 50-page paper. And somebody raised their hand and said, I don't believe in 50-page papers. I think we should do about a two-page paper. And he was like, well, I don't know. So we in the end. Then we talked about attendance. Nobody wanted to come to class. And in the end, he finally hit the table and he said, I'm in charge here. We're going to have four tests, two papers, and you're going to be here every night. And I thought, way to go, Mr. Communist. This is kind of a life lesson here, I think. But do we not love rules? I think the only thing we love more than rules, though, is actually breaking rules, right? and then coming up for excuses. Uh, A couple of weeks ago when we were driving in a church who came in the back way, I guess it's actually over on this side, and there was a traffic officer that was down there with radar at the bottom of the hill below that little Presbyterian church. And I thought, he's waiting for all the people who are late at Taylor's. (laughs) And they're all gonna break the rules and then they're gonna go ask for forgiveness, right? Because this is what we do. We end up justifying, well, I'm late, so I need to break the rules. Oh, I've had this trauma, so I need to be entitled to break the rules. I've had all these things happen to me, or or, whatever. We constantly love not only to make rules, to break rules, but then to find excuses for why the rules do not apply to us. And see this is the situation that was happening here in exodus chapter 20 the israelites who had been in slavery are coming in and now they've been in egypt not for decades y'all they've been in egypt for centuries they've not been an independent people for centuries they've been slaves and that slave mindset has come in where they're not responsible, somebody's telling them what to do, all they're doing is doing what they're told. They've been in Egypt, where the theology is so corrupt and so immoral, and they begin to imbibe the morality of Egypt, and the gods of Egypt, and the behaviors of Egypt, the mindset of Egypt, and after centuries of this, God is leading them into the desert, preparing them to enter into the promised land where they are to be, as the King James called it, a peculiar people, who will live holy lives that will reflect on the holy God who has now rescued them from their slavery. And so when we get to this passage in, in uh, chapter 20, God is now beginning to reveal himself to them and he's revealing rules for behavior for them that really contradict the rules that they've had while they were in Egypt. And it's not that in Egypt it was okay to murder and commit adultery, but it's not built off of the framework that these passages here are built off of. So look again in chapter 20 in verse two, the first thing that God says to them is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And what God is saying here is, I am God. You are not. I get to make the rules because these rules are going to reveal something to you that you do not know. When I was a little kid, one time I I went and bought a bunch of bubbles. Y'all remember the little hoops and you blow and to make bubbles all over the place. And uh, I had spent, you know, a couple of bucks on bubbles. I was really a stupid kid. And uh, my grandfather looked at me and he said, why did you spend good money on that? I could have got you some dishwashing liquid and water and we could have made your own. And I started to say something. He said, no, 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 I'm your grandfather. I know more than you do, shut up. I said, yes, sir. (laughs) This is our relationship, yes, sir. And this is sort of what we've got going, the Israelites can always come up with an excuse and God here is revealing and saying, look, I am God. I love you so much. I have rescued you out of centuries of slavery, and because I've done that, you need to know what it means to worship me in spirit and in truth, in a way that no one else is able to worship me. And so He then begins to reveal His heart, the priority of God, that we will have no other gods before Him, even though we constantly are trying to add our own gods in. Look at verse four. Will not make any anything that's like an idol or a likeness. Will not substitute a false god for the real God. Right. And then he talks about you're not gonna worship them or serve them, I'm jealous. If you love me, I will bless you. Verse seven, you're not gonna take the name of the Lord in vain. And this take word actually is, means to lift up. It's not just to speak as in uh, like, like when you use bad words or filthy language or something like that. It's actually to take on ourselves the name of God as an empty pers- purpose. And so when we act as hypocrites and things like that, that's actually what we're getting at in this. And then look at the Sabbath, the Chick-fil-A commandment, as I like to call it. You know, you got six days, you're open. The seventh day, you're not open, right? Y'all were supposed to laugh at that, that's okay. Laughter's good in church. It's all right. True. Kathy would love that joke for those you know him. And so we do have this idea that we have a rhythm to our week. So up until verse eight, we've got this vertical relationship. That's us and God. And then we begin the shift in the intersection of the Sabbath between worshiping God and how we work with one another. And then we start in verse 12, honoring the things and giving a uh, priority to the things that God has revealed are important. So the first one is the family honoring the relationship between father, mother, children, and so forth. So we got a horizontal relationship here and honoring marriage as God has designed it. Then we have honoring the image of God that he has placed in each and every one of us as children of God and his creation that we will not murder. And then honoring the vows of marriage that we will not commit adultery. And then honoring actually private property that we would not steal. Honoring the idea that we have truth, which is important, which is bearing false witness. And then honoring as well, well human relationships that we don't want what other people have and set things up so we can snag it. It's not just stealing in 15. It's burying our hearts down on the idea that what somebody else has is not fair and I get to get it instead. And this is ultimately a hard issue that gets it the way that we relate to one another. And at this point then we've got vertical relationships with God. We've got horizontal relationships with one another. And this is why we talk a lot historically and legally about the 10 commandments being foundational for a civil society is because these rules not only reveal God's heart to us, but it prepares us to be able to live in harmony with each other. And this is important because if you're going on a 40-year road trip, you better know what the rules are to get along with each other. Lisa and I have uh, twins, boy-girl twins, and uh, we used to do a lot of road trips, and so the kids always knew kind of what the rules were, and when they would break the rules, they knew that there were going to be punishments that were given and so forth. And so this leads me to the first point that we have, and the first point is this. The law gives us directions. It's the law that gives us directions or gives us guidance to what it is that God wants for us to be able to do. These rules that are revealed here are not rules that nobody had anywhere else and stuff like that, but God here is Consolidating it into it, so that we are beginning to then see that God's revelation of Himself is going to be a vertical relationship, how we can relate to God, and it's also going to be a, re- a revelation that helps us to be horizontally related to others. And in this, God is revealing His nature to each and every person that's here. And so, what He's saying is, "I am a holy God. I am the God who made the world, and you shall not substitute the things of this world for the things of God. You are going to live in a way that is going to make other people." Ask, why are you so different and that ultimately is what this is getting at the law here is instructing us it is guiding us on how to live not only in peace and harmony but how to ask the question how to answer the questions that come up when you do that and people say why are you the way you are and they mean that as an actual compliment now, I had a student one time It was about the third week of class I was teaching at a state university and she came up to me after class and she she looks both ways everybody else has left and she said can I ask you a question? And I said, absolutely. And she said, are you a Christian? <laughs> and I said, yes, what's the uh, dramatics about? And she said, well, I didn't know if you wanted people to know you're a Christian or not. And I was like, I think it's okay. I'm a Christian, you know, and, she, and I said, why do you ask? And she said, there's just something about the way you teach our class that's different from the way the rest of our teachers teach, and this is in a secular context. And this was not me. This was God in me. And we were able to end up having a a spiritual conversation. I had a kid one time when I was teaching at a state university. He had been out for about two weeks, and he came to me after class. And he said, all right, I'm pretty sure you're a Christian. i got to talk to you. And I said, well, you've been out. Where have you been? And he said, "Uh, I was not out sick. I was out heart sick. And he began to tell me the things that were going on in his life. And what was happening there was the peculiar way that I was doing things and handling things and all that, which are in in, in obedience to God's word, were things that would cause people then to ask questions. And so the scriptures here and the commandments are teaching us not only to live our lives that are differently, but to live lives that will reflect the holiness of God, such that people that can then be pointed toward the holiness of God. And so as God reveals himself here, what it's doing is it's helping us to be in a position where we can live differently and we can begin to see ourselves differently, see God differently, and then others can see us differently, ask questions, and then it'll point toward another direction. And that leads us to issue number two, and that is the law that is here is the law that offers conviction. When uh, I was a kid, I used to always try to get away with as much as I could. I don't don't know why my parents still speak to me, in fact, because of some of the things I did when I was a kid. And uh, let me just give you one example. Uh, When I was about eight years old, I decided I didn't like baths any longer, and that I wasn't gonna take baths any longer, but I was very passive aggressive. So dad would shave our heads on Saturday night, which was craziness. They called me the bald eagle up until fifth grade. And um, dad would shave our heads on Saturday night, and then mom would run a bath, and if we got our heads shaved, and uh, I would go first because I was the oldest. Then my brother had to have my water after I was done and because uh, mom and dad were real cheap. And uh, so uh, they sent me back to take my bath. And about five minutes after I'd been in there, dad bursts in the door because he had a suspicion that I was not taking my bath. Probably because I stank like a dog, you know. Um, but dad came in, and I was lying on the floor with my back with my feet up on the side of the tub reading a comic book. Buck naked. Can I say that in the pulpit? And dad says, what are you doing? And I said, what are you doing? And uh, what had happened was I decided I didn't want to take baths anymore. So what I would do is I'd put a pocket full of dirt in my pants and then I'd drop it in the water so there'd be dirt in the water, right? So it's dirty bath water. Uh, And then every now and then I'd reach over, splash around read my book for a while and everything. Then I'd come out like, hey, my hair, because he shaved our head, we weren't wet, right? Because we didn't have any hair. And so this had apparently been going on for some time, and Dad caught me absolutely red-handed, and I had no excuse. I'm not taking my bath, okay? But in that moment... I now look back as an adult and I think about all the commandments I was breaking in that moment. I was not honoring my mother and father. I was bearing false witness to the effect of the bath. I was, you know, you you go on through it here. And what was happening there was in that moment, I was convicted of actually disobeying. And we begin to see this through the New Testament as the New Testament writers are looking back on the Ten Commandments and in the law, and Paul, being the great rabbi that he was, is looking back, uh, Romans 7, 7, this is is what Paul says as he's thinking about these things. He says this, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, do not covet." In other words, what Paul's saying is the law is a great thing because the law tells us what right and wrong is so that it's not left up to the designs of our own hearts. And and so we get these shortcuts that are in here, this shorthand that God is saying, I am a holy God, you are to be a holy people, here's a starting place. And that starting place is God and then the relationship with others and so forth. And what happens is when we break the laws, we begin in our own hearts to become convicted of the laws that we have broken. So so listen to this. This is Paul again writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 8 uh, through uh, verse 10. It says this, the law is good provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for the righteous person. In other words, people who abide by the law, people who actually obey the law, are not the reason that the law is there. The law is there for the people that break the law, right? So this is what he says. We know that the law is not meant for the righteous, but for the lawless and the rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinful, for the holy and the irreverent. And then he begins to list, uh, provide us with a list of sins that are exposed to sins by the law. And what he's getting at is this. We have nothing to fear from the people that obey the law. The problem that we have is we have to fear the things that happen from people who disobey the law. And is this not a problem we see in our country, right? There are people who obey the law. That's not where the problem is. The problem is with the people that do not obey the law. But in this point, what Paul is getting at is this. When they break the law because they are irreverent, they are godless, they are unholy, what comes next? Because once we have broken the law, then the question is, what do we do about it? And this takes us to our third point and that is this, the law reveals the miracle of grace. The law has been given to us such that it reveals the miracle of grace. And so here's what we have to ask, that we've broken the rules, we failed, how do we then make up for it? When my parents caught me not taking a bath, how did I make up for it? Well, I think I got a spanking and I think that's pretty much how that was uh, taken care of. But what ends up happening is often as we are finding ourselves where we have seen law broken and we have seen commandments broken and we've seen relationships broken, what we find is that we not only suffer from the results of our sin, we suffer from the results of other people's sins as well. And this causes us then to begin to see a world that is absolutely a broken world. Because our world is filled with brokenness because the world itself is hostile toward God. And this is why God said that we will visit these things on generations because those people hate me and they hate the things that I stand for. They hate holiness. And so what happens is then as we begin to look around the world, it's easy for us to see the brokenness that's out there. And I will tell you this because I have conversations with people about this all the time. Most people who are outside of the church and outside of Christ know that there's something going on that they have broken and they violated. And I believe this is why people sleep with their TVs on and they've got their smartphones all the time and they're medicated all the time because the last thing in the world they want is to be sitting by themselves in the quiet listening to that still small voice that says you are broken and there's nothing you can do about it, which, by the way, is the voice of Satan. But sometimes it's the voice of the spirit that says, you are broken and there is something that can happen because of it. A number of years ago I was flying, and uh, this is why I love a Christian liberal arts education. Uh, One of the things that I do as a literature professor is I want my students to read things that are uh, not by Christians so that they can understand uh, the mindset and the worldview of people who are not Christians, and so uh, when I used to teach a course in world literature, I would teach a course, or I would I would teach a story that's called the Ramayana, and the Ramayana is a story that is very holy to Hindus. So you go to India and places like that, and and uh, they all know the story of the Ramayana. And the story of the Ramayana is basically this: uh, There's a Hindu god named Vishnu, and Vishnu decides that he wants to teach people how to. Uh, tone, how to cover for their sins how to be redeemed for their sins and so he leaves his divinity and he comes to humankind he's born as a prince and as a prince he suffers unjustly and then that is to teach everybody that when you suffer it's to make up for the sins that you have in your life Does that sound kind of vaguely familiar or anything? Okay, now now let me unpack that for you a little bit. So uh, because I teach the Ramayana and and I've wrestled with this and I help my students to look at that. Um, One time I was on a flight to, I believe I was going to Dallas and this gentleman was sitting next to me and I was reading a book and he asked me about the book and asked me what I did. I said, I'm a literature professor. He said, oh, I love literature. It turned out he was Hindu. He was from India. And uh, I said, by the way, one of the stories I teach is the Ramayana. And he said, you teach the, the Ramayana, are you kidding me? And I said, it's a fantastic story, it's phenomenal. And he said, uh, so we talked about it a little bit, and then he kind of he said this, and he said, he said Rama is just like Christian Jesus, you know. And I said, he is, what do you mean by that? And he said, he came to teach us that we must suffer because of our sins. And I said, oh, no, I'm sorry, you've got that mixed up. So Jesus came to teach us that he suffered for our sins and the burden is not on us. And I said, we have a thing in Christianity we call grace. And let me tell you, grace trumps karma all the time because it's not about us. It's about what Christ has done for us. And he said, that's an interesting perspective, sir. And I said, well... And so I, I don't know what happened with that gentleman, but this is why I love Christian liberal arts education, that we can read these things and we can be prepared to talk to people and engage with people. And, and look at this, go to Ephesians chapter two. In fact, we're gonna be in Ephesians and Galatians for a couple of verses. So if you'll flip over to Ephesians chapter two and kind of keep your finger or your pen there uh, just a little bit, look at Ephesians chapter two, because this is what I said to this gentleman as we were uh, finishing up our conversations. This is Ephesians chapter two, look at verse eight. It says this for it's by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. And that's what I said. I said, Rama can boast that he suffered for sins and he ended up where he was. I cannot boast because there's nothing I can do to cover for all the sins that I've committed. Oh, and by the way, I was never a nuclear arms dealer or participated in human trafficking or something like that. I was just a little eight-year-old boy when I came to understand what Jesus had done for me, but I have nothing to boast in except for Jesus Christ and nothing else beyond that. So think about this. As, As we're looking at this, the law that is there, the law begins to teach us and the law begins to help us to understand that we all are liars. We all are people who have borne false witness. We all are adulterers in our hearts, at least, even if not. The, and we've all dishonored our parents at some point. And so you start clicking off of it. We all have not given God what God is due. And all of us are now broken and should be out of relationship and fellowship with God. But the beauty is that we are not. Let's see if you can fill in this sentence. What can wash away my sins? What can, What is it, y'all? Nothing. But the blood of Jesus, right? So flip over a couple of pages to Galatians chapter 3, and, and look what we've got here in this fabulous letter to the Galatian church. And, and this is getting at this thing about what can wash away our sins is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Look at what he says here in verse 13 of chapter 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And what he's getting at here is this. The conviction that comes from the law is a conviction that creates an eternal burden for each and every one of us and a curse for each and every one of us. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse, just as God redeemed the Israelites from the slavery they had been living in. And so when we begin to go back to those verses in Exodus 20, and we look back at them with the corrective lenses of the New Testament and the corrective lenses of the gospel, we begin to see that what God is setting up in Exodus is not a system of laws that will allow us to be redeemed, but it's a system of laws that allows us to long for someone who will redeem us because we can't do it on ourselves. And so let, let me propose this for you. we have got some cups here. And... Uh, One of the things I get to do at uh, North Greenville is, I'm also CEO of a sewer company. Uh, So we're up in the hills and we we can't have septic up there so we have a small wastewater treatment company. Uh, Crusader Mountie LLC, CEO. My mom thinks it's hilarious that I'm president of a sewer company as well as a university. and so, I, I, I say that in background to this. I want for you to imagine that in this cup is the purest water that's available. It's been filtered by by everything you can imagine, and it's absolutely filtered. And uh, I, I want you to imagine that this cup also has absolutely pure water in it. There's there's no defect. There's no blemish. There's there's nothing in it at all. But I want for you to imagine that I've gone over to Crusader Mounty Wastewater LLC, and I've scooped up some stuff out of our septic. Uh, facilities that are there, and now I've said it here. I know you're ready for lunch and I'm grossing you out, but that's okay. God, who is holy, God, who is set apart, God, who has no blemish, who has no sin, who is set apart from all of us and has created this world, created us in an original state with Adam and Eve before sin came into the world where we shared in that purity and we shared in His holiness. But through sin, we have brought toxicity in the world. And imagine, if you will, that I just dip my finger into that sewer water and I just drop one drop in it. Does anybody want to drink it anymore? You don't. Because it now has more in common with that than it has with that. And this is what sin does, sin changes everything. And the law that helps us to try to minimize sin by giving us some rules and instruction and guidance and all of that, what it also does in that process is it underscores for us that we are more like this than we are like that. And the impulse that all of us have once we know that we've got some toxicity or or some failing or brokenness in us, the the impulse that all of us have is we wanna filter it out ourselves But I don't know about y'all, I ain't touching this no matter what it goes through. Because I know what's been in it. But here's the beauty, y'all. Whereas we should be like this, God comes in and God says to us, you are holy. You are redeemed. You are pure. The law that has been broken has no hold on you. I have rescued you from the slavery of that, just as he rescued the Israel. Last night I was, as I was preparing, I was thinking about a couple of illustrations that I wanted to use uh, to go with that. And I went down to our our storage room that we have in our basement, and I pulled out my grandfather's preaching Bible. And uh, my grandfather Fant was, well, visits with him were like visits with the Pope. It's the only way to describe it. He was a very interesting guy, but he got saved as an adult, became a pastor, became an evangelist, and traveled all over the world. And when I pulled out the Bible, I had not looked at this Bible since he died almost 20 years ago. And uh, I was I was very fortunate to be the, the grandson that got to snag the preaching Bible. Uh, but when I opened it up, inside the front cover of it, it said, this Bible was purchased in 1954. It said, I used it in six weeks Six weeks of revivals in Oregon, California, and Nevada in 1954. I used it in eight weeks of revivals on the West Coast in 1958. Uh, this Bible was my companion in crusades and preaching rallies uh, across Europe in 14 countries in another year. And so he, he's going through all of that, and then he's got the list of... Uh, his two sons and my aunt. My my dad's a pastor. My dad's brother was a pastor. My dad's only sister was a lady wrestler. She hates that joke and I still tell it. So when she comes in April, she says she's going to wear a leotard or something. Um, And then uh, he's got listed his four grandsons. uh, And then Uh, You know, it stops there because he doesn't know about the great-grandchildren and all of that. But I look back at that heritage and that legacy that I as a preacher have, as I as a Christian have, but here's what I want everybody to understand. All of those things that my grandfather did are not enough to cleanse me. This morning after the service, a lady came up to me and she hugged me and she said, I was saved under your father's preaching in 1985. I was like, what? So I texted my dad, you know, and all that. But let me tell you, my dad's preaching is not enough to do that. My godly grandmother was not enough to do that. My godly mother was not enough to do that. The things that I have done in dedicating myself to studying God's word and teaching in Christian schools, so none of that is enough because none of that can filter out all of that. There's only one thing that allows this to become that, and that is the blood of Christ Jesus. Here in chapter 13 of Galatians, slide over to the next passage just a little bit, uh, verse 23, still in chapter 3. I mean, Paul is hitting this, it's like 39 times the law is, or 29 times the law is mentioned in Galatians. And look at this in verse 23, but before faith came, and this this is Christ, before Christ came, We were kept in custody. We were kept locked up under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our guardian, our tutor, our guide to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come in Christ, we are no longer under a tutor or a guardian or a guide. We are under Christ. And look at what he says then, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants heirs according to his promise. And this is the beauty that we have then in Christ Jesus is that the law that has instructed us that was a guardian for us for a period is no longer the thing that sets us up for punishment and condemnation, but it's the thing that points us to the need for Christ. And here's the last thing they want to make sure you all get in this. The beauty of it is we don't go to sleep at night wrestling with what do we do, what do we do? Because we can just turn it all over to Jesus. The burden's not on us, y'all. The burden is on Christ, and he's already taken care of it. The burden of the law is one that convicts, but the burden of the law says, what can I do? I can't do anything, but I know the one who can. And this is what's incumbent on each and every one of us is to find out how do we love our neighbors in such a way that they will say, why do you love us like this? Because again, I'm in Galatians, flip over to Galatians chapter five, and this is one of your memory verses for this week. For those of you who are doing this, look at what it says in verse 14 of Galatians five for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in one statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself and what it's getting at there is love your neighbor as god has loved you 1 john 4 verse 10 419 We love because he first loved us. We are released because he has first released us. And we then have the opportunity to share that with all the people that are in our universe, all the people that are in our neighborhood, all the people that are in our workplace, all of that because here's the bottom line. You have been set free from the Egypt of your sins and you have been set free by the God who loves you. And therefore, you don't have to have the burden anymore. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful to know that what I know about myself, what I know about my sins and my brokenness and the ways that I struggle, all are subjugated to the one who has paid the cost for all of that. And so, God, when, when we fail to live up to the law, when we fail to live up to your commandments, when we fail to love others, which is the greatest commandment, God, I know that we can still go to you and say, God, I'm so sorry, help me forgive me and that you are faithful and true to forgive. So God, Even in this time of commitment, God, I pray that if there's anybody here who thinks that they've been having to do it on their own, God, I pray that they will lay it down and that they will pray to allow you to redeem them and to forgive them. God, if there are those here that are struggling with a lack of forgiveness for those who have committed sins against them, that you will let them be able to lay it down and forgive others and love them as you have loved us. And God, I just pray that as a church and as a community, we will be a light that will shine. Of holiness that we can tell others when they ask, why is this place so different? We can say, because there's one who's made a difference in my life, and that's Christ Jesus. And so as we come to this time of decision, this time of commitment, God, I pray that you will move in the hearts of those who need to be moved and move the feet of those whose feet need to be moved in now. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.